0: Hey folks, it's John from As for Alcoholic again. Today's conversation is with Ariel Clark. She is the owner of Ciscot Tea. It's Louisville's black-owned, woman-owned, LGBTQ-owned tea cafe. And sober space in the middle of bourbon country in Kentucky. And so it was just really great to talk with her about how she came to to get sober and be sober and to deal with all of the things that we all struggle with, you know, and the specific struggles of being black, of being a woman, of being part of the LGBTQ uh, community. All of these things that contribute to what is often seen as the only solution but to drink and the need for places for people to go and just be without having the pressures of alcohol around them all the time. It was really great to talk with her, and we had a really amazing conversation. So I hope you enjoy this conversation with Ariel Clark.
1: So... I actually did not grow up with alcohol in my home. It just wasn't a thing growing up, which mm-hmm. um, apparently is a little bit rarer these days. Um, I don't ever remember seeing alcohol in the home. I don't ever remember a mention of alcohol in the home. Like even to this day when I'm around family, we we don't drink. It just, it's just not a thing. Mm-hmm. My first experience with alcohol was in high school. And in high school, it was the big thing to have the hookup to get alcohol and Um, be able to go to house parties and different things like that. But because I didn't have a background in it, it wasn't as exciting for me. And so um, I saw how excited my friends got when they got access to alcohol. And I felt um, peer pressure to drink as well. And so that's when I started drinking. I stopped in college because I really, well, actually I take that back. Um, I did drink pretty heavily my freshman and sophomore year of college, because I was going through a lot of transition. Mm-hmm. Um, I was having some conflicts at home. I was going through a breakup, and the transition from high school to college is never easy. And for me personally, I was one of very few Black people at the institution I went I went to, and I was one of the very few LGBTQ people as well. And so I found a lot of comfort in alcohol, and I actually started gaining LGBTQ friends outside of college, and they drank very heavily. Um, there was a lot of drinking. There was a lot, there were also drugs as well. Um, mm-hmm. I didn't really dabble in the drugs. I smoked a lot of weed, but, um, drinking heavily kind of became the norm for me. Um, I, mm-hmm. I could function without it, but it was very like, I can't wait for this day to come so I can get drunk and forget all my problems. And drinking also gave me confidence. Um, cause I grew up, around a lot of racist rhetoric of like, black people aren't beautiful and people constantly critiquing my appearance and things like that. And when I was around the folks who drank, all of them found me attractive. And so I loved being around alcohol because people desired me, people wanted me. And for one of the first times in my life, I felt desired and I felt loved. And so um, my drinking slowed down a little bit until the age of 21. Um, I did go overseas a little bit. I studied abroad. Um, I had an amazing opportunity to do that when I was 19 going on 20, something like that.
0: Mm -hmm. Um, and I
1: did drinking there and I turned 21 and every Friday and Saturday night for the longest time I was out at the bars drinking. And, um, for folks in the LGBTQ community here, drinking is very normal. Um, it's also it's almost a little bit abnormal when you tell people you don't drink. Um, I tell people I'm sober now and they go, Oh, are you, are you in recovery? And I'm like, no, I just, I just choose not to. I, yeah, I don't want it. It doesn't make me feel good. It doesn't do anything for me. It's expensive, you know? Um, But the big kind of like one of the huge stepping stones of the LGBTQ community here in Louisville, Kentucky is, you know, when you turn 21, you're old enough to drink and get into the bars and you can meet other LGBTQ people. And again, that lack of self-confidence, I felt better when I drank and everyone else around me was drinking and drunk and I couldn't enjoy myself unless I was drinking too, because it like, and it like lowers your inhibitions and things like that. Mm -hmm. And so I remember drinking a lot and making a lot of really risky decisions, like going home with people I didn't know, um, letting people I didn't know give me drinks. Like there were a lot of really risky things that I did and Um, I'm not really sure when it happened. It wasn't like a a light bulb moment or a snap your fingers moment, but I was just like, you know, drinking doesn't feel good. Um, I'm technically not supposed to because I've been on antidepressants since I was about 12, 13 years old. So I'm actually not supposed to drink on them. Um, I, I think it's expensive and I never feel great the next day and I don't enjoy drinking. I enjoy what happens when I'm drinking with other people. And so, and as I got older, just the club scene really isn't for me anymore. I'll go every once in a while, maybe like once every six months, but it's just loud. <laughs> it's loud. It's late. Yes. My bed.
0: Yes. 8 m. <laughs> I understand.
1: So, um, I've also kind of looked around the city of Louisville, and we're in the middle of like bourbon countries, so bourbon is everywhere and Louisville has a lot of bars and more bars are opening, especially with them trying to really push tourism with covid nineteen and you know mm-hmm. so um eventually, I was just like, alcohol is so prevalent here in the city and Now that I'm an entrepreneur, I go to networking events and things like that, and there's always alcohol at the networking events. I would go to LGBTQ events like Pride festivals and things, there was always alcohol at Pride, and it's so normalized, and as a person who has Mm -hmm. mental illnesses, like I have depression, anxiety, and PTSD, I really have to be careful with my alcohol consumption, because for a while I used it as a means to cope with my PTSD. And I see a lot of folks in the LGBTQ community trying to cope with traumatic upbringings with alcohol and how, and how it affects people. I remember when I was a freshman or sophomore in college, I had a few friends that drank every single day. Like they would wake up intoxicated and spend the whole day just staying intoxicated and back then I thought it was funny like man you can party hard but now it's just like no you had a problem and
0: mm-hmm.
1: um, now I have quite a few friends who drink I choose not to um, save me money saves my health and because of the space that I'm opening I choose to be sober um, because I want to reflect the mission of my business mm-hmm. and um, alcoholism is prevalent in the black communities as well. And so it's really important for me as a black LGBTQ person to be sober while I'm running a sober space and a sober business.
0: Yeah. The, the thing you just, you said going back a little bit about, um, beginning to drink and going to bars and that it was the first time that you felt desired and loved was around alcohol. And, very much feel the same way that there was this sort mm-hmm. of eye opening experience of I can sit at a bar stool and people will talk to me and i can you exactly. know I can congregate and these are my people, and oh my mm-hmm. gosh, and I can meet and, and and just people were interesting and they were interested in me and i'm like mm-hmm. I've never thought myself was interesting and I you know my my experience is much different because I grew up with lots of alcohol and abuse mm-hmm. in my family and my father and stuff like that, and i I I had to go through a program of recovery to, to make my way to where I am at now. So it's always fascinating Mm -hmm. to me when people say, well, I just stopped. Um, because it's such a varied experience, Mm -hmm. alcoholism, um, and, and addiction and, and, and finding a way to break those things. I mean, some people I have a friend who's quit for health reasons and mm-hmm. he didn't require anything else. And he was, he drank just as long as I did, maybe longer. And so, mm-hmm. but just that idea of it being this thing where you're like, wow, I can be loved because of alcohol and how that the mm-hmm. emotional hook <laughs> gets. in Right. You. Right. And you,
1: it really, it definitely started as emotional for me and, mm-hmm. um, Oh, that lighting is much better. <laughs> and, um, for me growing up, again, as a, as a black girl, um, I went to primarily white schools and lived in a primarily white neighborhood. And, um, you know, growing up, I had crushes on people. And they would, you know, tell me no or decline me because I wasn't pretty to them because I wasn't white. And so I had a lot of self hate growing up as well. But then suddenly, I would go to these bars, and I would drink alcohol and other people would drink and they'd be like, wow, you're so sexy. And I'm like, alcohol is the reason. And so I would go to bars and spend way too much money and way too much time. Um, the bars here in Louisville close. Uh, it's been a while since I've been to the bar. Um, I think if I remember correctly, they close at 4am. And so wow. I remember I would be at the bars from like 10pm to 4am Friday and Saturday night, like until the lights come on and they would kick you out. Yep. And I would feel so beautiful and so, so desired and so wanted because all these people who were drinking around me found me desirable. And I also watched how other people would drink and they were able to just walk up and talk to people. And I would watch people like pair up on the dance floor and things like that. And I would be like, I want to be able to do that. And I have Really bad social anxiety sometimes, especially in really crowded places. And so, alcohol would kind of help the social anxiety go away. And so, I started depending on alcohol to be able to talk to people. So,
0: and so, just in this, in all of this time and trying to find a space that you felt wanted, desired, fit in all of those things, mm-hmm. at what point does you know you said there was no one particular epiphany about quitting mm-hmm. but at some point you must have developed some some confidence or self-love or mm-hmm. something that that you go oh wait a second the things that alcohol is giving me aren't real right was there was there a shift or what was that shift or what was that like what was the
1: so I have a history of abusive relationships and my most recent abusive relationship was about three, four years ago. Um, and we, I started going to therapy because um, I have PTSD from a lot of different things in my life, like a culmination of different things. And I started going to therapy because my depression was getting a lot worse. And so I didn't realize that the abusive relationship was contributing to that. And so I started going to therapy and we started really digging into like why I feel the way that I feel, um, why I don't have any self-confidence. And I started really unpacking like the racist and homophobic ideals that have been taught to me in therapy. And it took a really long time and I still really struggle. And I started having more and more sober moments because the person I was with had alcohol in the house constantly. And I saw that they drank alcohol to feel better. They drank to calm down. And, um, I did not like being around this individual when they had been drinking because they would be somewhat volatile with me and I couldn't determine what their emotions were going to be. And I'm super sensitive to conflict because of like trauma and stuff in my life. And, um, I started drinking as well to cope with living with an abusive partner. And this partner in particular was a controlling partner. So wanted to look at my phone, would journal where I was every single moment of every single day, would not let me go anywhere without them. And um, I started drinking whenever I went out because I just didn't, I didn't want to think about it anymore. I didn't want to think about the trauma that they had given me or that other folks had given me because, um, I'm also a victim of sexual violence as well. And so I started drinking to cope with that. And, um, I started relating drinking to, you know, it's, you know, drinking just helps me loosen up. I'm just being a prude, you know, that kind of thing. And it really took a lot of really intense therapy to unpack that. I don't need alcohol to be beautiful. I can say no at any time, sober or not. Um, I, and more than i am more than willing and able to walk away from abusive relationships and get out of those and so i guess my epiphany began when i started therapy about 3 or 4 years ago and um i started getting more black friends uh because the majority like 99% of my friends were white cuz there weren't a lot of black people and being around all those white people they teach you innately these things about black people and you start absorbing those even if you're black yourself and so you know, I would be like, "Mm, you know, black women aren't that attractive to me or, you know, what it turns out it was like internalized racism and things that I had been taught that were wrong. And so as I started unpacking those, like reading Audre Lorde and, you know, talking with other black folks and kind of going and getting, getting the, having the ability to like go into more educated spaces, educated black spaces and kind of unpack all that really helped as well. And so I do still get the urge to drink. Like a lot of people assume that because I'm sober, I don't get the urge to, um, when I have like super stressful days or when I'm really depressed, I have the urge to drink. When I have a really great accomplishment, I'm like, I should get a bottle of wine. And then I sit back and I'm like, wait, why? I don't even like wine. Like, no, it's just what's been trained in me forever. Like, you know, and, Mm -hmm. uh, the, I guess the epiphany, I would say, was starting therapy and, yeah. and unpacking all of the negative things that have been taught to me, not just about my race and about my sexuality, but also how I should act in relationships. Um, because I have two significant relationships that were very abusive. And um, I those relationships taught me to be passive, to do whatever that person wanted to, that I would always be flawed. I was never going to make them happy. And I honestly used drinking to get away from it.
0: So. Yeah. Um, I always, when my, my, when I'm having a bad day or I'm having trouble or something like that. And mm-hmm. sometimes my girlfriend will say to me, John, what do you need? And mm-hmm. the first thing that pops into my head is, and I have, I haven't, I haven't, I've been sober for five years and I say, I need a drink. Mm-hmm. And so I know that that's not really what I want. And mm-hmm. that becomes more of the, red flag of like, oh, okay, so what's really wrong? What's really going right. on? Or exactly. even those moments of celebration. Uh-huh. Um, and I've heard lots and lots of relapse stories where people just say, oh, it was such a beautiful sunny day and I was so happy and I just uh-huh. felt like it would be a perfect day for a beer and then they're off. Uh-huh. Um, so, And then something else that you said um, previously, having more and more sober moments. Uh, I know in, in AA and recovery, you know, we, we say a lot of one day at a time. And if we can just stack enough days together, then we can, you know, create the sober life. And, and sometimes it's, you know, it seems insurmountable or impossible to do it all at once, but I love this idea of, of recognizing the sober moments, even if you Mm -hmm. are still drinking here and there and trying to navigate this world where it's just, in your face all the mm-hmm. time, I mean, certainly, yeah, you live right in bourbon country. I was a bartender for years, and so yeah <laughs> I mean that's where that's where the stuff is made mm-hmm. so i so I, I, um, I can't imagine being inundated at I mean every single major city in the country mm-hmm. in in this country is like that, but um, so you you see this all around you, and mm-hmm. you want to imagine a space where you don't have to see it. Right. And so can you explain a little bit about Ciscot Tea and what this, where this all kind of came from? This is the thing that I, sure. I, I was really excited to uh,
1: talk yeah, sure. about. Yeah, sure. So um, LGBTQ life here is really inundated with alcohol, and I think that's kind of a national trend. So there are quite a few LGBTQ bars in this city. Um, the majority of them cater to white gay men but there's a couple that you know are just they're open to everybody like all bars are open to everybody but like the crowd is white gay men Mm -hmm. Um, so the biggest one that we have here is called play louisville and it's a drag bar slash dance bar and it's like the most popular the most successful bar in in the city, LGBTQ wise. And it's, it's honestly a ton of fun. Like the drag shows are absolutely amazing. I've performed at the drag shows. It is absolutely fun to be on either side, whether watching or performing. Um, The crowd is absolutely dynamic, but it's, it's a bar. You, you drink. It is very rare to see someone at Play Louisville without a drink in their hand, or they're already drunk when they get there. Um, And so a lot of LGBTQ entertainment is very exclusive in that it's bars. And the way Play Louisville works is um, if you're between the ages of 18 and 20, you can get in, but you have to have an adult sponsor who like won't drink that night or make sure that you don't drink. Hmm. I don't know. the Okay. Um, And before Play opened, we had another bar that was called Connections, which did the exact same thing. And so we considered Connections kind of like the, the breakthrough of like, now you're a real LGBTQ, you know, and I feel like you have to either drink or be really, really patient if you want to go to those spaces, because it's loud. It's, it's, it's just a lot. It's crowded. Mm -hmm. People are in your face. I just, I get overwhelmed. So um, growing up when I was a young LGBTQ kid, like I had my first crush on someone of the same gender as me in kindergarten and like kindergarten can't drink. So, um, growing up, I had all these crushes Mm -hmm. on people who weren't cis, cis boys Mm -hmm. and cis men. And I didn't really have anywhere to go. Um, I didn't have a place to just hang out with other LGBTQ people, to ask questions, to be social, to have entertainment. Um, we have some places that aren't, like outwardly LGBTQ it's just like LGBTQ people happen to congregate there, like local coffee shops and things like that. But I really wish that there had been a space that was like, we are LGBTQ owned and LGBTQ friendly. And we host LGBTQ events that are accessible to all ages and races and things like that. We do have a group here in Louisville called Louisville youth group. <clears throat> I don't remember what their schedule is for meeting, but they are a basically a youth group for LGBTQ youth um, between a certain age range. I cannot remember the age range for the life of me, but I didn't discover that until junior year of high school. Mm -hmm. And I had been LGBTQ since I was in kindergarten. And so I remember growing up very alone. And I came out, I didn't understand the concept of sexuality until the age of like 12, somewhere in there. And I had these friends, when I was in grade school that I really trusted and I was like, I'm bisexual and they flipped out and told everybody and it was awful. It was absolutely horrible. Um, so I kind of sat back and I was like, well, I don't really drink. Bars aren't really that fun for me anymore. Like I'll go out for somebody's birthday, but it's like, we get there at 10, I'm leaving at 10 30, happy birthday. I'll wait for the car. Mm -hmm. And I wanted a space where I could just sit down and, be kind of low key and be casual and you can come up and similar to a bar almost where you can come up to the counter and just like talk to the person brewing tea or, you know, you can just sit, relax, have an LGBTQ event, that kind of thing. And uh, I also wanted to be able to hang out with, with friends all across the age range because when I was 19, 20, I had friends that were 21, 22 that were able to drink and they'd be like, we're going to the bar. You want to come? Oh, you know, Mm -hmm. Um, I also wanted a place where folks who can't be around alcohol or choose to not be around alcohol can go because you get a lot of weird looks when you go to like an alcohol centric place and you're like, Oh, I don't drink. They're like, are are you okay? I'm like, just because I don't drink doesn't mean something's wrong with me. Like (laughs) I'm not in recovery. I'm not, you know, and people who are in recovery don't have anything inherently wrong with them. Like don't stop treating those individuals like a social pariah. Like, yeah. drinking is so normalized in our, in our society. And um, another thing is I, I grew up in the South, obviously. And so I grew up on like sweet tea and stuff like that. And I just started dabbling in tea as I got older and we have a small establishment here called global tea company, absolutely amazing business, but they're on like way on the other side of town, like 30 minutes away from here. It's a smaller, more retail space where you go in, buy tea and you leave. And up until recently there was a Tivana in a local mall here but it was retail as well it was like you go in you grab your tea you leave and so um I apologize for any airplane noises I live right next to the UPS Worldport so
0: it's <laughs> okay
1: UPS just flies back and forth every day wow so um I wanted a place where I could get tea and explore tea and things like that. And the city of Louisville is inundated with coffee shops, whether it's local regional or national chains or like really unique coffee shops that don't exist anywhere else. It's an amazing coffee community, but
0: mm-hmm.
1: I'm not a really big coffee drinker. Like I'll drink it. If I'm like, man, it's going to be a long day, um, mm-hmm. drink it a lot in undergrad and then I just kind of stopped. But there wasn't really a good place to sit down and have tea. And so that's where the tea part came in. Like I want to bring a really wide selection of teas to the city of Louisville because we are kind of a tea desert almost. And Cisco tea came to be, it was a decade in the making actually. So when I was in undergrad and still now I'm really into jokes with puns in them because they're just hilarious. Yes. And so I was sitting with a bunch of my friends and I had finally like found like a group of, LGBTQ folks and allies that I could really be myself around. And so we were sitting in the lounge of my undergrad one day and I say, Hey, I have an idea. And they're like, Oh God, what? Cause I always had ideas in undergrad. Cause I was like, I want to be this. I want to be this. I want to be this. You know, I was like, what if we opened a bakery level with me guys? What if we opened a bakery and we called it pie curious and named each pie after like a famous bisexual person. And they were like, that's Brilliant. cute, but I don't think that's gonna work. And I was like, You're right, I don't know how to bake. Bad idea, we'll move on to the next one. And so, like, the next day, <sighs> we're sitting in the lounge again, and I'm like, Wait, I have an idea. And they're like, Is this like the pie thing again? I was like, No, 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 I got a better idea. I got a better idea. What if we had like a tea cafe or coffee shop called LGBT? And they were like, Actually, that's really cool. And I'm like, Right. And back then, I was like, And I would name like each drink after a famous queer person. So like you'd have to walk up to the counter and be like, I'd like a tall Ellen DeGeneres. <laughs> mm. <laughs> like that was the plan. And so- like
0: I could get a splash of Harvey Milk in my in my tea. Exactly,
1: just- <laughs> exactly. And so like Harvey Milk would be like an Earl Grey tea with milk. I had like a running menu of stuff like in my head when I was playing. Uh-huh. And usually with those ideas, I kind of forget about them. Cause I'm like, haha, ha, I'm never going to start a business. That's a lot of work. But that idea- never really left my brain. And so, you know, that was like 2009, 2010. Fast forward to 2016, um, I'm working at uh, the major university here at the University of Louisville, and I'm working in student affairs. And the majority of student affairs has their master's degree, and I did not. I had chosen not to pursue that. I was like, I don't wanna go to school anymore. And I was determined at that time to stay in student affairs for the rest of my life. Cause I thought that was my calling. And I was receiving like mumbles of like, you know, you'll move up if you get a master's degree. And most people in student affairs get a master's degree in college student personnel. It's like a student affairs master's degree. Mm-hmm. I was like, well, actually I don't know if I'm going to be in student affairs for the rest of my life. So let me get my MBA. And, um, I did the master's program at U of L. Um, it was, it was very enlightening and we had an entrepreneurship course. That was a really intense one week entrepreneurship course. And I had kind of forgotten about the tea idea until the entrepreneurship course. And they were like, think of a business idea. And I was, and I blurted it out and I didn't know my classmates very well. Cause it was a professional program. So we didn't really, I didn't really make a lot of friends cause I was working full time and all that stuff. Um, and I was in my most, my most recent abusive relationship at the time. So um, I blurted it out. and People were like, that's actually a really cool idea. I'm like, Oh, thanks. And even the professor was like, that's, that's pretty impressive. I was like, Oh, okay. Well, Hey, you know, um, 2019 rolls around. I get my master's degree in about 13 months, 2019 rolls around. Some things happen. Um, my unhappiness with my job just grew and grew. I got into a really bad car wreck that messed up my hip and my back. And I just, I quit. Uh, one day, I had a falling out with my boss and I was like, I can't do this anymore. I, I can't. And I had no plan. I had no backup job. I had no income. I was like, my last day is July 3rd, 2019. I don't have a plan, but I'm going to figure it out. And I quit. And while I was working at UofL, I got really close to the director of my department. Um, We became really good friends. Unfortunately, she passed away from cancer while I was working there, and it really affected me. And she was one of the very few people that I told about my idea. It was like her and my therapist were the ones that knew about like starting an LGBTQ tea space. And she always supported me, always, always, always. And I told her I was getting my master's degree, and she was like, "So you can open that tea shop, right?" And I'm like, "Aha, that's really fun." No. And so um, I remember after she died, I was a wreck and then you know I worked a couple years for the department still and then I quit and afterwards you know I was like I'm going to take a couple weeks to recuperate mentally and then I'm going to go on the job hunt again She kept appearing in my dreams, John. It was weird. She kept appearing in my dreams and she would just say, open the shop. And that's literally the only thing she would say. It was like in Lion King when Mufasa visited Simba and he was like, remember who you are? Uh She would literally say, open the shop and then just disappear. And it happened for weeks. And so
0: um,
1: this was in July. And at the end of July, I was invited to an LGBTQ meetup for entrepreneurs. And the person who invited me was like, yeah, you should totally come. And I'm like, I'm not an entrepreneur. I'm not an entrepreneur because I hadn't registered the business yet. They're like, oh, it's for people even with just ideas, you know? And I went and I told people, like people who had already been established, like I met one of my best fr- like my best friends today who owns like the LGBTQ bookstore in the city. And she was like, that's an amazing idea. Like that is something we really need. And on August 2nd, 2019 at like 11 o'clock at night, because I spent like three weeks filling out the business application to register. And then I'd get to the submit button and be like, no, it's too real. <laughs> and then I would like close the laptop. Then one of my friends was like, just, just do it. Um, and on August 2nd, I registered Cisco T as a business and I did not have a plan. Not at all. I didn't have a business plan. I didn't know how I was going to get money. I didn't have any product. I I had nothing. And I was like, I really hope this works. And so I registered the business. I made a Facebook page and I shared it on my page and I was like, Hey, sis got tea (laughs) and it spread like wildfire. So many people were excited about it. And so I kind of stepped back. I was like, okay, this is great. I have no money. And so I started the Kickstarter and I did $10,000 $10, in 60 days um, because if you don't meet your goal with Kickstarter, you don't get any of the money. And so I was like, this is really high risk. And I was like, I'm probably not going to make it. You know, this is a really cute idea. I'll probably shut down the Facebook page in a month. I, I don't know what happened. <laughs> um, the local newspaper here, the Courier Journal, reached out to me and they were like, we would love to do a story. We ran across your Kickstarter and it was already gaining a lot of traction. Mm-hmm. Um, they did the story on me and I had raised like $4,000 in a week. And I was like, what is, what is going on? And the Courier Journal did the story and released it. And within 45 minutes of the story breaking, I hit my goal. Wow. And I, I was like in the car getting gas. And all of a sudden my phone started blowing up. And the Courier Journal was supposed to tell me like, oh, we're going to publish a story today. So I was waiting for that. And all of a sudden I'm like standing pumping gas in my car and it's like, bloop, boop, boop, And I'm like, what? <laughs> and it got shared all over the world. I got donations from France, from Germany. I had international publications reaching out to me being like, this is an amazing idea. And it was the most popular article for the Courier Journal that week and every week they choose what to put in the physical newspaper. Mm-hmm. And my mom called and was like, Why is your face in the paper? I was like, what are you talking about? Because I'm a millennial. I don't get a paper. <laughs> and so she's right. like, she like comes over to my house. She's like, look, and like shoves the paper <laughs> in my face. And there's my face in the paper, like one page after the front page. And um now I've I'm got loose leaf blends going and it's been an amazing journey. Siscot um, tea will be one year old on August 2nd, which is
0: next week, right?
1: Next week. <coughs> it's, it's been a whole year. And so it has been amazing. The people that have come out of the woodwork just to talk about Siscot tea. And I didn't realize, and I come from a place of privilege because I have never had to go through recovery. Um, I have never been diagnosed as an alcoholic. I've never had to go through that. I do not come from an alcoholic family, but I didn't realize how badly the recovery community needed this space. And so many folks have reached out to me and I didn't know that the recovery community was so large and the recovery community is one of the major reasons I'm still, I still want to do this and why I'm passionate about it. So Cisco T came to be out of my need for the space that I wanted when I was growing up as a black LGBTQ girl, and then as a black LGBTQ woman who drank and um, I eventually went from and a lot of people don't know this, this is the first time being public about it eventually I went from drinking to have fun to like, oh, drinking makes me sleepy and I can't sleep. And then I was like, oh, alcohol makes me feel bad. So I'm going to switch to sleeping medication and like Mm. Benadryl and things like that. And Mm. so I had a really bad problem with that, like taking it every single night. And of course, as you take it every night, you get more tolerant to it. So I was drinking more and more of it. And uh, um, I still have issues with it to this day. Like yeah. I still have to take sleeping meds every once in a while because I just struggle with sleep because of PTSD. But if I have a really bad day or if my depression's really bad, I'm like, I'm just going to sleep and I just immediately want to take sleeping medication. But that's beside the point. Um, so Cisco so T came to be uh, the brainchild of a decade of puns and a mm-hmm. need for a space for sober folks, particularly LGBTQ folks to come together in an accessible space that is accessible for folks under the drinking age for folks who choose not to drink or can't drink for folks who have mobility issues because a lot of the bars and nightclubs here are not mobility accessible. Um, and they're not friendly for neurodivergent people or people on the autism spectrum because of flashing lights and things like that. Sure. So, um, Cisco so came to be because there's a really big need for more sober space, especially as there's more focus on mental health and substance abuse in America with everything going on,
0: um, mm-hmm. especially
1: with quarantine. So yeah, sure. that's the that's, l- really long version of it. That's
0: great. No, I, it's great. And you, you talk about recovery people and, and I, I, I know, I know being in recovery all this the last five years or whatever, I've met a lot of people mm-hmm. and as a recovering alcoholic, we have lots of time in our day and, you know, nowhere to go. Yeah. And so it's constant, especially in early recovery, this, you it's just trying to fight back the urge to go to the bar right. a lot of times or to go buy a bottle of something. And so, mm-hmm. um, and I don't, I live in a very small town in California and there's, there's some places, but um, it, there's not anywhere. Like that, like you're describing, you know, that Mm -hmm. is dedicated to this, that is here to foster this, that's interested in, you know, supporting Mm -hmm. a sober space for whoever needs it.
1: It's much needed because not only do we have a really big like bar and nightclub Mm -hmm. and urban tourism industry here, um, within, Not even a fourth of a mile of my apartment, there are three liquor stores, like designated liquor stores. And then there's like Walgreens and the small convenience stores that have alcohol. So it is very easy to fall into temptation here in this city. And you cannot go, like I said, not even a quarter of a mile without seeing a liquor store. So.
0: Mm -hmm. That's great. I'm, uh, I'm glad that I, I found you and um, it's great to talk to you. I, yeah. I, um, is there, I guess a couple of questions. Is there, mm-hmm. is there, is there anything, what do you struggle with right now as a sober person?
1: Um,
0: or is I want to
1: say, I want to say everything. Um, let me preface this by saying that I will never understand the struggle of being in recovery. I have a lot of privilege in that. Um, I struggle because a lot of folks are like, you made this milestone with Cisco tea. Let's go drink to celebrate. And I'm like, Mm. "Mm? (laughs) you don't, I don't know how many times I have to tell you that I don't do this, you know, Yeah. or it's like, wow, you had a really stressful day fulfilling all those orders. You want me to get you a drink? I'm like, no. (laughs) And a lot of people bond over drinks here in the city. It's like, oh, I'm in town, let's go get drinks, or let's go to brunch and have mimosas and things like that. And um, fun fact, today's my birthday.
0: Happy birthday.
1: (laughs) Thank you. And so a lot of folks have reached out and been like, when are we gonna go drinking? And I'm like, for the 57th time, like, I'm, I'm sober. And they're like, well, you can have a water while I drink. And I'm like, that okay we can we can compromise i I guess, and then it's like, "Wait, why are you doing this It's coronavirus. Why do you want to go to a bar? <laughs> uh, so, no yeah so um it's it's been a struggle because a lot of my friends do still drink, and a lot of places around here are very alcohol centric. I do have an amazing support system that just either doesn 't drink or drinks very rarely or they mm-hmm. understand that i 'm sober and know not to drink around me, um, out of respect. And then I do, I do get the urge when I see somebody drinking or people are like, I had a really great glass of wine today. I'm like, man, I could go for that. And then I'm like, could I really go for that? Or do I just want to be able to relate to you? Mm -hmm. Um, and 99.9% of the time it's, I just want to relate to you and feel like I'm popular. Um, so that's been a struggle. It's also been a struggle to explain why the space is needed because a lot of people, aren't out about recovery, not out of shame, but it's just not something that's talked about. Mm-hmm. And alcohol is so normalized here in the city that when I say, Oh, I'm creating a sober space. They're like, well, why do we need one of those? And I'm like, because.
0: <laughs> because everything in the else is drowning country and, and like
1: everything else. Yeah. So,
0: mm-hmm.
1: um, you know, I have to pitch to investors. I have to pinch to banks and I have to talk to entrepreneurship groups and things like that. And I emphasize the sober part. And they're always like, well, why is it important that it's sober? Like I did a, um, hmm. like an entrepreneurship, like accelerator program where we like worked on our elevator pitches and things like that. And basically like, it's like a course for entrepreneurs. And I added in my elevator pitch that it's a sober space and it'll be alcohol free. And the coaches were like, why are you emphasizing sober in your elevator speech? I'm like, because it's really important that the space is sober. And they're like, well, are you not going to allow alcohol at all? I'm like, no, Absolutely not. And they're like, well, what if you get a liquor license and you give people the option to drink? And I'm like, bars and nightclubs have the option to drink, but I don't want that temptation there at all. And so it's really difficult to explain to people and kind of get through to them that sober spaces are desperately needed um, mm-hmm. because alcohol is so normalized. And it's similar to. How when I pitch to people, when I talk to people, I always emphasize that it's black owned, LGBTQ owned, and woman owned. And people are always like, Well, do you have to include that? And I'm like, well, yeah, because there That's... are very few like LGBTQ owned businesses. There are very few black LGBTQ owned businesses, like all of those, especially in today's political climate. With I live in Louisville, Kentucky, the epicenter of Brianna Taylor. And mm-hmm. so knowing that there's a black owned business out there brings people a lot of comfort. And you know, we're going to have Black-centric events. We're going to have LGBTQ-centric events. All of our events are going to be sober. I have vowed to... I won't say all of them because I have had some interaction with bars. Like, there's a bar here in Louisville that uses my tea blends in their cocktail and mocktail mixes, which, you know... I think that's, that's totally that's fine. fine. Yeah. But that's not my norm. Like, I'm not right. like, oh, if you want tea, you got to go put it in a cocktail, you know. And it's only one bar. and. Right. They're super supportive. They have sober events all the time. Like they're absolutely amazing people. Um, But 98% of my events will be sober events and accessible for people of all ages. And um, I also, I also struggle with folks not understanding the intersectionality of everything. So a lot of folks are like, yeah, you can have hair braiding workshops and things like that because black hair is really unique and special and takes a lot of care. But then I'm like, yeah, we can also have like black parenting workshops. And they're like, wait, why? I'm like, because black people can have kids too. (laughs) And so um, it's just been a very unique struggle in a lot of different areas. Um, But by far having all those emphases, all the emphasis on black owned, LGBTQ owned, woman owned, and sober have been the most difficult for people to come across, especially when you're pitching to like, Old white dudes who really love bourbon that have millions of dollars, like, well, why does it have to be sober? And you know, does it matter if it's black owned? And I'm like, it does. Just kidding, me. I don't want your money. Goodbye. Oh, right. <laughs>
0: exactly. I, I'm just, I'm always, I'm always surprised at that. Is that is those those seem like big selling points to me. Those are mm-hmm. things that are that are exciting and different and interesting and grossly under. um they're, they're very, very needed for people right? Mm-hmm. and especially sober. And, and I, but it also reminds me what an uphill battle it is being a sober person in a world that is filled with drinkers and that that's, mm-hmm. that's, that's the norm that we do after a hard day's work or a hard week's mm-hmm. work or just, you know, crack a beer. Mm-hmm. And so it's, it's, it's great to me to think that there is yet another place because like you said there's the Walgreens and the liquor store and there's the numerous, innumerable amounts of bars and restaurants. Right. And, you know, I was a bartender for 15 years and um, and three of those were sober, which was very bizarre, but you know, it's, it,
1: mm-hmm.
0: it's so important that we have spaces for people to go and feel comfortable. And, and, you know, I know that the, the phrase save space has connotations for different people for different reasons, but I think it's uh-huh. so, it's, it's important because what I, just from my own personal perspective of being somebody as an alcoholic, uh-huh. especially in early recovery, it's like, I need to have some place where I feel comfortable, where I feel safe, uh-huh. where I don't feel like, because I'm more afraid of myself than anything else, right? That I'm going to, I'm going to slip off and, and go for a drink. So to be able to say like, yeah, let's go get a cup of tea and not have it be some sort of, Oh, right. tea. we're not, we're not going to go get Manhattan's or we're not going to go crush some mm-hmm. beers. And it's like, no, I don't need that in my life anymore.
1: Right. And the temptations are everywhere. <laughs> like you can't even go to the grocery store without going through the beer section, you know? Mm-hmm. So, um, we desperately need those spaces that yeah. don't have the temptation at all. So, mm-hmm. um, I'm looking forward to, and we have, you know, AA Louisville and things like that, but I'm really looking forward to having like resource tables and things in the space that have like alcohol recovery, because I never see anything out in public, like any brochures or anything that's like recovery, you know? Um, And that's why when I started this, started this business, a lot of people reached out like, Oh, I'm in recovery. And this is really great. And here's some resources. And I'm like, why didn't I know about this before? Because it's not, really talked about and so I'm really looking forward to bringing recovery to light because some people may not think that's an option and I've also discovered that a lot of people don't realize they have a problem because it's just so ingrained in LGBTQ life to just drink so
0: and I I imagine I know that a lot of my well my alcoholism come came from growing up and feeling even as a white cis male that I was um, an outsider that I didn't belong, that I didn't fit in. So to have additional layers of feeling that way mm-hmm. cannot be easy for a person, you know? And so of course, alcohol seems like a perfect solution <laughs> to all of those problems. And maybe it is in a flash, but the problems don't go away. And so it's, um, I just think it's, I think it's a great thing and I was very excited to read about it and hear about it. And, um, yeah. And I, I think too that, uh, like AA is much more because of COVID and because of zoom meetings and because mm-hmm. I went to a meeting out in the middle of the park and people are smoking weed at the bocce ball court next right. to us. And it's like, it's like more and this more isn't the point, the
1: please. Can we move?
0: <laughs> it was a man I'm like, well, do we, I guess we all got to get new recovery dates cause, uh, but right. It, it, <laughs> It was just ridiculous. Now we're high
1: by proxy, uh-huh. Great. Right?
0: <laughs> so it's, um, I think it's more and more, I'm glad to see it's more out in the open
1: mm-hmm. and that
0: it is an option for people. And, and, you know, um, mm-hmm. and I, I would say, and then the last question I wanted to ask you was yeah. as somebody who, um, I guess is it, I don't want to say you're not recovering alcohol, you didn't recover, mm-hmm. but you're sober, um what what advice do you give to somebody who says well maybe i'm not interested in recovery or maybe i'm i don't know if that's for me and you got sober because you just finally got fed up with it and realized mm-hmm. it wasn't do it was wasn't doing anything for your life mm-hmm. is there some advice for someone who may just want to get sober and doesn't feel like recovery is their way
1: i have I have quite a few friends that are in that position. Like they want to get better, but either they don't know how, or they feel like the recovery options they have do not fit them. Mm-hmm. Um, I have a lot of friends who are not religious and I think, and please correct me if I'm wrong. AA is kind of has a little bit of re- religion kind of woven into it. Maybe
0: it was, like a, it, it there's a, it. there's a spirituality concept and yes, yeah. the word God does show up. And I think that that bothers a lot of people and yep. I understand why. And it bothered me at first. And, but again, yes yes it does Mm -hmm.
1: and so a lot of people are like no AA's for religious people i don't do that you know um or they they're like i just i need alcohol or you know life won't be as fun anymore um and back when i was younger i really wanted to be like captain save everyone and i'd be like just go to recovery you know um everyone goes at their own pace Mm -hmm. um I had personal struggles throughout my life that are nowhere near as difficult as recovering from alcohol or substance abuse, but everyone goes at their own pace. And I really encourage those who drink alcohol in an unhealthy way or are alcoholics, but don't know where to start or feel like they don't need or want recovery to really analyze um, why they're drinking in the first place. And that was one of the first things that I kind of went through in therapy was like, why, why do I drink in the first place? And of course, like when you're peeling away the layers of, of why and getting to the epicenter of why you're doing things immediately, you have like the defense mechanism. So like immediately I was like, because it's fun, duh. You know, my therapist Mm -hmm. would like, would stare at me like, like, because it's fun. And then eventually like week seven, it's like, because, I don't have any confidence. She's like, there you go. (laughs) So, um, it's not a process that happens overnight. And I give people that advice a lot and it helps them realize that it's not a process that happens overnight because a lot of folks that I've met who drink alcohol to where it's a problem think that, you know, it's going to be this really intense program and they're going to get sober in three days and it's going to be really hard. And, they watch television watch cable and see how bad the withdrawal can be and they don't want to do that they don't they don't want to suffer and i'm like i and i always say i have never ever had to go through recovery and i'm very privileged and very thankful for that but i highly doubt that it's as traumatic as it is made out to be in television or those reality shows that you see um there will be there will be difficult times and a lot of folks Feel like the moment they start getting sober, the moment that they slip their failures and you're not a failure. You're literally coming off of something that either your body or your brain is addicted to or depends on. And so people slip. Um, I started actually being sober like July, August of last year. And um, in January, I was like, I haven't had a drink in a while. And I had a couple of drinks at the bar, hated it, like just was awful. <laughs> like I was like, this isn't fun. <laughs> I woke up feeling awful and I felt like a failure. I felt like I had failed my business. I felt like I had failed the community because I'm sitting here opening this sober space and I went out and had a drink at the local bar. Um, but that doesn't make me a failure. That's just a stepping stone or a learning moment along the way. And for those Folks who struggle for any reason um, and don't want to go to recovery, I really want them to analyze, one, why they drink, and two, why they don't want to go to recovery. Like, are they afraid of the change? Are they afraid, afraid of facing trauma? Are they afraid of failure? And yes. And <laughs> talking through all of, those, all of those fears and not saying things like, don't be afraid, or all of those things. Just affirm what they're feeling because a lot of folks when they say i'm afraid of something or what if it's always like well suck it up you'll be okay that just makes things worse and so when folks tell me about their fears of going into recovery or you know i think i'm maybe an alcoholic and i don't know it it's like what what you're feeling is valid and it is valid and okay to feel the fear and think about the anxieties that you're having what's talk through them logically. Like, let's make game plans if things like this do happen. Like, if you do feel any pain or discomfort while you're, you know, sobering yourself from alcohol, let's talk about resources that you can go to. Um, If you have a, a lapse where you do drink, what is, what does the process look like? Do you have a sponsor? Do you have somebody to talk to? And making those connections is very important because I can give all the advice in the world, but I have never gone through the process and struggle of recovery. And I applaud you and everyone else that has gone through that. Like happy five years. That is absolutely Thank amazing. You. I am in awe of you and congratulations for doing that, especially in the world that we live in. And with everything going on right now in the past, like six months, like that is John, that is absolutely amazing. And I applaud you. I am so, so proud of you. And absolutely, absolutely amazing. Like you said, you're five years in recovery and I was like taken aback and it's important to have those folks who know where you're coming from, because I could sit here and talk to you, John, about you're doing a great job, but like, I don't know what you're going through. (laughs) So like, I could sit here and be like, you can do it, but you're going to be like, well, yeah, it looks easy to you because you don't know exactly what's going on inside of me. And so definitely making those connections. And I think that's one of the biggest struggles I see with people too, is they don't have connections to people that want to recover or are going and having the same thoughts of like, I want to recover, but I don't, or I don't know how and definitely Mm -hmm. making those connections because a lot of People in my life that drink alcohol and drank very heavily back when I was an undergrad felt very alone. Um, in particular, one person that I was friends with that was drinking very heavily lost both of both of her parents very young, and so she basically grew up on her own. You know, with no parents. Um, I know folks who drank because they came out and their families kicked them out, or um, they didn't understand what was going on because they didn't feel aligned. Like they felt like their gender identity was changing and they didn't know what, what to do or what they were feeling. And so they just felt alone and not supported. And so definitely having those support systems, um, reach out to the folks and I know that may be difficult. And so I hate to put the labor of reaching out for help on the person who needs help because it's already a lot to go through the process of what you're going through, And so I challenge sober folks who have friends who drink and express at any time, because I think it's very inappropriate to be like, Hey, you drink too much, but they haven't said anything. Like, Uh that's just rude. (laughs) Like how dare you? It doesn't work
0: either. I promise you it doesn't work, but yeah.
1: Right. Exactly. Like if I saw you at a bar, John, I was like, Mm -hmm. John, I think you have a problem. You'd be like, no. And that makes people withdraw even more and like just drink more in secret. And so if one of your friends or something mentions that they feel like they have a problem or mentions that they have an issue with it, just be there and support them. Um, just say, Mm -hmm. you know, here are these resources that I've heard about. Can I connect you with someone and just really take the time to empathize with them, but also don't tell them how they're feeling and don't tell them that it's going to be like an easy journey because you'll never understand. And so for those of you who are struggling, um, are struggling in recovery struggling to get into recovery don't want to do recovery I hear you and I see you and what you're feeling is very valid Um, and the fear that you are having or any resignations that you're having are completely okay and there are support systems out there and you are not alone and whatever reason that you're drinking for you can you can recover from that so yeah
0: amen to all of that, this, yes, thank you. Um, and then, just finally, any last plugs for Ciscot Tea? Where, where, where can we get this? Where can, how can we enjoy this?
1: Yeah. So right now we don't have a physical location because
0: okay.
1: a physical location is a lot of money that I do not have. Um, we're working on it though. And then um, we had a really aggressive timeline to be open by. Oh man, it's 2020, isn't it? We were going to okay. be open by July 2020 didn't happen. COVID, (laughs) Um, COVID and no money. So, uh, right now we do have an online store and I just released loose leaf blends and they have been a huge hit. And so it's been absolutely amazing to build up the anticipation of having that physical space, but also people enjoying the product as well, because if people don't enjoy the product, I can't pay for the building. So, um, the loose leaf Blends are on sale right now. Um, Our website is syscotttky.com, and I can send that to you. We also have social media. Um, The tea is actually really inexpensive. It's $4 a canister, and then flat rate shipping all throughout the domestic U.S. International shipping rates change based on USPS and all that stuff. So, um, There's also a donation link on that website for PayPal. So, If you don't want to purchase anything, you're not a tea drinker, you're more than welcome to just donate directly to Ciscot Tea. Um, all donations and sales go to maintaining the online store and working towards opening a physical space. So there's that. And if you don't have the funds, um, because you know, LGBTQ people and um, Black people are socioeconomically disadvantaged, just spreading the word, honestly, and supporting us from afar works just as well, if not better. So tell your friends. Tell, tell everyone. Um, I got retweeted by SZA a few few weeks ago and, uh, that really helps with exposure as well. And just spreading the word and honestly, giving feedback to Cisco T is absolutely essential for me. I am building the space for the community. I am not building the space to own a business and be a millionaire. Like that's not, that's not my MO. And so If you have feedback for me, I'm always asking on Cisco T social media, like, what can we do better? What do you all want? What are your favorite tea blends? What are you doing today? Like that feedback is much needed because without community feedback, I have no community space. So like, for example, I'm not in recovery. I've never been in recovery. And so I have those really essential conversations with folks in recovery. Like, what do you want to see in a space that's recovery friendly or sober friendly? Um, the same thing with trans folks, I'm not trans and folks who have mobility issues. So community feedback, um, is greatly appreciated donations, purchases, like exposure, spreading the word. So
0: yeah. Well, Ariel Clark thank you so much for your time no problem it was great to meet you it was great to talk it was great to you. meet you too and um, and um I will be looking for tea and I'll put all that stuff in the show notes I'll get it off your website and uh Facebook and oh, all that and awesome I'll that okay in show notes um cool so, yeah, awesome thank you so much
1: no problem if you ever want to chat again let me know and John like I said I'm really proud of you and happy five years See thank
0: you so much thank you
1: no problem
0: Thanks again for listening. Our music, as always, is by Neglect. You can find more of his stuff at neglect.bandcamp.com. And you can find us on all social media platforms that matter, Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. And you can reach us at asforalcoholic at gmail.com. Talk to you later.
1: Yeah.